Welcome to Digital Consciousness TV and Soul Pods Radio, an auditory and visual adventure for the soul, delving deep into what we think we know, thought we knew, and don't really know, breaking the preconditioned shell of social realities to unveil the essence of truth, exploring undefined boundaries with some of the greatest thought leaders of this generation. So please sit back, relax, and take a sip from the cup of open minds into your journey of conscious evolution. Hello everyone, welcome to Digital Consciousness TV or if you're listening to us on Soul, po- Soul Pods Radio, uh, thanks for joining us today in uh, what are some amazing journeys with uh, some amazing teachers and, and thought leaders in the world. And this next one is one that I knew at the very beginning <laughs> that this was going to be unlike any interview I've ever done. And if you've followed my work, you would have seen that I've interviewed people like Dr. John Martini and uh, Don Miguel Ruiz and uh, a bunch of amazing uh, other people, uh, to name a few. But uh, it, I knew, I just knew <laughs> that in this interview it was not going to be like any interview that I'd had before. Simply because Luhan is uh, one of the one of his his work is the kind of work that is a transmission. You don't read his work and just read the words on the page or listen to the audio. It's it changes something in your being, and I felt this in a really deep way on so many different levels and so many different multi-dimensional aspects. It was, uh, and I knew that I had to talk to this man. <laughs> and speak with him and share his message with our platform and our and our people uh, because I do believe that uh, his work is very important for where we're going into the next evolution of consciousness. So Luhan Mattis or Nagwal Luhan Mattis is a, a shaman teacher and a seer who was initiated by the age of seven and he was instructed in a parallel realm for almost 33 years. However, that was just a glimpse from the perspective of the timeline he exists in now within this living construct. This has been documented in his book, The Art of Parallel Perception. Now, The Art of Parallel Perception is the living tapestry of Luhan. It's an interdimensional odyssey that weaves its magic threads through one's own existence in a way that has to be experienced to be believed. And that is exactly what happened as I read his books. In 2012, he, he published the book Shadows in the Twilight, uh, this was Conversations with the Shaman, and this is an exquisite dialogue between Luhan and his apprentice Bill, delving into concepts like the energy double, dreaming awareness, first attention and second attention, and describing the innermost workings of the holographic universe with rare precision. Uh, going back now, though, in December 2010, he had uh, published the book Awakening the Third Eye, and this was discovering the true essence of reca- recapitulation. Uh, talking to the veiled communications from our third eye matrix. He offers invaluable insight into how to recognize and develop our own relationships with the magical faculty of the third eye seeing and ways to integrate in that into our daily lives. And fast forwarding now into June 2014, he had published uh, the newer version, I believe it was, um, oh no, the revised version, sorry, was The Art of Stalking Parallel Perception, but this one in June 2014 was Whisperings of the Dragon. Uh, shamanic techniques to awaken your primal power 
another amazing experience. I can't even say it's a book. It's just it's an experience. <laughs> um, it's a step-by-step guide to setting your personal metamorphosis in motion. How to recover your authentic self with simple techniques. Uh, he talks in there in as to how our socio-culture inheritance weighs heavily upon our um, heavily on our intangible self and. It's reflected in the erosion of trust in our intu- intuitive knowing and consequent inability to see and do what is truly necessary. Luhan's also been featured in the documentary The Cosmic Giggle. If you haven't seen that, Google it and watch it. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> and then we also talk a bit about his upcoming book, which was, uh, or which is Without Fear, Without Blame, Without Judgment, Who Am I? And here he delves into many different uh, uh, aspects of... of uh, self and, and he speaks to it I won't talk to him too much to it but he speaks to it in the interview uh, it was a really enjoyable space to be able to experience Luhan and enjoy his uh, his lightness and his uh, his knowledge that he shares so uh, he just gives it away so freely in, in the sense of just being there and, and being of service and uh, it was really amazing and, and it certainly taught me that I really don't know and much at all it's got so much more to know and, and as we all do in this evolutionary journey there are so many aspects of the fine-tuning and tweaking of self um, and so he talks a lot to some uh, really interesting topics we talk about uh, the future self and linear timelines and I <laughs> touch base on the fudge factor and, and how that ties in which is about uh, dishonesty and how that ties in with uh, integrity and the importance of integrity we also talk into uh, moral imperatives um, and looking about at, at, at looking at wh- what he means by being in the wrong place at the right time. And then we also delve into being empty. What does it mean to be empty? Uh, beyond that, we talk about energetic sovereignty uh, and dream states, uh, living with integrity and how that uh, builds your personal power. And of course, we, we, we duck and dive through a whole bunch of other, bunch of other topics uh, in, as it organically sort of flows and uh, also talk to his new book, uh, Who Am I? So if you would like to find out more about Luhan, you can hop onto his website, www.parallelperception. So www.parallelperception.com and uh, you'll find out more about his work. So please sit back and enjoy. Okay, welcome, uh, Nagwa Luhan Mattis. How are you? <laughs> Very good, thank you. Thank you so thank much you. for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate being here. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, one of the first questions that sort of came to mind after reading your books, and I've, I've mentioned to the listeners already in the intro um, about about your books, was um, around um, our current reality or reality being fated or not, and so. My question sort of goes a bit like this. <laughs> in the current reality, we live in time and space continuum that appears linear. So for people listening, you know, that means when we are young, we're old and we die. So there's a straight line. However, when we come into contact with, say, your benefactor, as you mentioned in the book, my understanding is that it's uh, it's non-linear. So there's no beginning, no end. So if we blow out the linear perspective, are we just all reflections of one consciousness in this realm and the other ones? So as an example for our listeners, when you met your benefactor, was this just a version of yourself coming back to impart the wisdom you already know onto you in this realm? And therefore, are you the creator of the symbiotic relationship 
or are they and and do we actually create the path as we're experiencing it or is it fated by our future self okay um to everything you said no mm -hmm. it's uh, basically the appearance of my benefactor or the appearance the appearance of this particular being uh, was separate to me in an alternate timeline. So if you could imagine that, that I was born and I was around the age of six and seven, mm -hmm. and then I, I became in contact with someone who was uh, in a timeline which was maybe 360 years previous to mine. So, the, so there are alternate timelines uh, from jumping one timeline to another. So, so virtually what happened in this situation is that I was kicked out as an individual and within that, within the premise of that, I grew into him or he grew into me. Mm. Yeah. So it, it, um, I didn't create that. Mm. That's, that's not me, yet it's 100% me. Mm. So it's, uh, the, the person I was before doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, right. Okay. In yeah. the, be the benefactor, the, the the concept of the benefactor, does everyone have a benefactor or is that just um, something that's happened in your experience for you? Well, it's very, very interesting my experience in terms of in terms of what occurred. Now, the, the first thing I'm going to say is that everybody's got the possibility to be uh, much larger than, than what they originally expected. Yet, when you get into the position of um, attempting to be larger, then you lose you lose the absolute essence of your own path. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in, it's in reduction uh, that one becomes uh, capable of of organizing things uh, from a perspective of fractalization. Mm -hmm. you, so you you can realize one thing, but within that one thing that you realize, there may be multiples uh, occurring in terms of your insight. And these these insights are. Uh, um, uh, something which, uh, like light fibers that hit you, that have instantaneous, instantaneous information embedded within it. So, if if I was to uh, to meet my benefactor and uh, he shot towards me uh, an enormous amount of, of energy as as a ball of light, which um, which collided with my chest, then my chest becomes immediately infused with that information. It's not something that was learnt over a period of time, yet it was inst instantaneous. Yet, when you look at the whole the whole event. It, uh, it occurred over a 33-year period for the awakening. That was on a linear timeline. But uh, an alternate timelines, uh, beyond those linear timelines, you'll see that, uh, that there was a certain amount of fragmentation in, in terms of how I met him in three different aspects of my childhood. So these, these timelines were, were separated from each other. So, so I existed uh, in those particular timelines, yet even though they're, they're fragmented, there's still there's still one. Mm -hmm. This is a very very difficult thing to understand. Mm. Uh, even to ex even to explain it, it's uh, it's non it's, it's non linear and it's very very difficult to comprehend. It's just a, let's let's look at look at it this way. Just say that you've got um, uh, your your female child with you and you're you're doing your washing up and you're 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 saying to your your child, uh, let's do this and let's do that. And uh, as she's wiping the dishes, opening the cupboard, putting away, she's talking to you while she's looking at you. She's multitasking. Mm -hmm. So she's, she's doing very, very many different things all at once. And then you've got the, then you've got the, the man child or the boy child playing in the sand with the truck. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the mother says to, to, the, to the daughter, go and tell Tommy uh, to come here or you need to tell him something. And she goes to Tommy and he's with the, with the truck in the sand. Mm -hmm. She says, Tommy. Mum wants to talk to you and he stops playing with the truck because he can't multitask. Mm. 
Mm. And he looks up to the to to his sister and he says, "Yes, what do you want?" And she said, "She she was telling him what he needed to do, and he had to listen without playing with the truck." So, so there's there's a linear timeline for you, and then there's 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 a fractalized timeline with the with the experience that uh, that how a how a female human being operates, but still, you've also got to look at this from from a from a non uh, identifying or um, bias perspective in terms of seeing a human being as a human being mm-hmm. but but you're you're still if i look at tommy and i say well he's a he's a human being not a boy then he has the opportunity to fractalize his awareness because there's no cognitive bias there to lock him into the position uh, that belongs to him because of the historical uh, behavioral patterns through century after century of men so you you, you look at this and you then you begin to wonder why this has occurred I don't really want to go into that subject. Maybe you do, <laughs> but um, but when you when you look at the intelligence and the and the capacity of a woman to to multitask, and then you look at the you look at the the inability of some some male individuals not to be able to multitask, but they're very focused on one thing, which which may have been essential thousands of years ago, and it may have been essential um, millennia ago for women to actually be multitasking because they're, they're, they've got children on the hip. They've got to be very, very smart because they're located in one position where a man had to go out and look for, look for you know, hunting and gathering, looking for food. Mm-hmm. Mm. Pretty, pretty interesting. But when, you look, but when you look at the hunter and gatherer, he's, he's a definite multitasker, mm-hmm. not not like the the modern day Tommy that's uh, that's playing in the in the sandpit. Very interesting subject. Mm, very, and it is it is it does go through in our societal conditioning to through that uh, you know that cognitive um, bias that you're talking about, and a lot of that has to do with generations going as far back as we can remember uh, through language and syn- or syntax of how we how we frame. Um, what a boy is meant to be, and what a girl is meant to be, and and mm. all these all these labels and and adjustments to what we believe, and we've created this this I suppose prison of reality, haven't we? In using um, the cognitive bias, and and that in itself, it's almost like letting a bird out of a cage, and it doesn't know that it can fly. Are we kind of in that same position with what we've done with language? Well, well all you got to do is look at your own words. Mm. We- We've created a we've we've created a cage. Now, as soon as you say we've created a cage, I would say no, I don't believe that, mm-hmm. because uh, because we've got Tommy and then we've got the Tommy the truck in the sandpit and then we've got the the, the hunter and gatherer. Mm-hmm. Now, if you if you realise what I did was uh, was mention Tommy in restriction and the hunter and gather protecting protecting his family that's uh, that's that's uh, sitting still because he's got children around her mm-hmm. and he's he's a multitasker so so he's actually free. In comparison to the to the modern the, the modern description, so mm. when you, when you look at the descriptions and you can see that the, the the possibility of one changes into the into the multitasking possibility of the other the the hunter and gatherer. Mm-hmm. So I gave both descriptions, yet the yet the description of being uh, trapped and the the identification between men and women uh, became became the issue of conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and therein lies the. Uh the gold nugget. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway. But mm. anyway. No, very interesting. Thank you. Um, in in amongst your uh, your book, there's a there's a really good theme of, of um, being what it means to be with integrity and how that relates to personal power. And I was watching this uh, 
this doco the other day and it was called Dishonesty, The Truth About Lies. And they, in there they talk about the fudge factor. Um, and they say the fudge, <laughs> factor, <laughs> the fudge factor determines how much dishonesty is still acceptable to you. So as a society, how, how much, for example, how much we uh, go above the speed limits is, is acceptable for you to drive or how much to exaggerate your online personal profile, what's considered a small, innocent lie to a person may be a big one to another person. And they're saying that the elements that influence the fudge factor from uh, are from believing that everyone else is doing it, so you aren't hurting anyone, um, or conflicts of interest, decision fatigue, or distancing yourself from crime, or doing it for others. And there's all these, you know, uh, stories, if you like, that that uh, add into this fudge factor. And what I'm what I'm interested in is is that um, the the they're talking about how we rationalize to do what we think uh, is we're doing is legitimate so i'm wondering if that's kind of theory that they have intertwines with how we may interpret integrity um you know i've met many people that speak of being in integrity yet energetically and intuitively it doesn't feel in alignment and i can see and feel leakages um and it's not matching what they're saying but i can see when they're talking that they're, they're seeing that they are within integrity so i wonder if and I, I want to you know get your thoughts on this if if we the the term of integrity um i feel like we sit in in the universal truth away from personal bias um but it makes me wonder how we can base the, a measure of words and actions of integrity to ensure that they come from pure consciousness versus a personal filter of perspective bias. Yeah, this is a very interesting subject. You know, um, the first thing the first thing that I would say to a person that was that was altering their perception to to do something which is which is not in alignment with their heart would be recognized by the alignment of somebody else's heart in terms of saying, well, I can feel that that's not right. Can't you feel that that's not right? Mm. Uh, usually a peer person will proceed uh, without the lesson uh, from, an, from another individual if there's, a, if there's a, enough uh, repetition to allow certain behaviors to occur. Uh, the repetition is what gives people permission. Mm. So uh, if, if a person suddenly, suddenly meets somebody who says, well, okay, I can't really proceed with that because it doesn't feel right. There's a, there, there's a, now, th this is a a very stiff way to say it, but there's a right way and a wrong way to proceed in terms of in terms of how you walk your path. Mm. Now, if you walk now, I've written about this in my next book. It's a white hat and black hat perspective. Mm. You can you can have a black hat perspective that wants to do something that that doesn't care about the the feelings or the or the environment of other people. Yeah, internal and the external environment are not cared for. So so that's that's a black hat. They go forward and they don't care about the destruction mm -hmm. or happens to to anybody else they only care about the result of what um, uh, is enriching them and then there's a then there's someone who may do exactly the same thing as a white hat but they may do things from an un, uneducated perspective and as they do it from an uneducated perspective they're just as dangerous as a black hat because they don't know the results because of the lack of education mm -hmm. yeah. so so the the good and the bad hat you then you then you've got to ask yourself 
well, if there's a good a good perspective and you see good people make big mistakes and bad people make big mistakes. So so the cognitive bias in terms of this is is where do you go when you when you realize there's no real real uh, lesson to be learned from either one because you can see each one is making uh, progressive mistakes in terms of their path because because life is all about making making mistakes and then correcting your your trajectory trajectory by by um, Every single thing you do, you subtly realize that, oh, you could do it a little bit better, and then you begin to, in terms of your own personal integrity, as a feeling. Now, there's another perspective, a perspective of, of watching things uh, in terms of the emptiness of your approach without, without any motive. And the only motive that you follow is the feeling which precedes you in terms of the feeling that, that arrives when you present yourself into a circumstance but you have to present yourself into a circumstance without wanting anything and if you don't want anything you can't proceed with telling anybody who you are mm-hmm. because you're not you're not important enough to discover who you are mm-hmm. through uh, through the circumstance of reflecting back to you that's your being of service to your circumstance that way so it's not that you're putting yourself down it's just you're not important enough to go ahead so then you then everything that you do in, in reflection of your circumstances reveals to you who the other person is and then then you're you then you proceed with the the very very subtle nuance of a black and a white hat presenting itself right in front of you now you can talk to a black hat and not reveal that you understand that the black hat is is actually revealing themselves to you and you can talk to a white hat and not reveal to them that you realize that the way they're proceeding uh, there are so many things they haven't considered mm-hmm. so you're neither involved with a black hat nor a white hat you're 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 watching what these these individuals or these circumstances do with the essence of your emptiness and as you watch the essence of your emptiness being moved by a cognitive bias outside of the, the, the premise of being a service to your circumstance because you disappear from your circumstances by being so neutral and so of service that you're observing everything that's going on in front of you, yet you're feeling everything within you. Mm. Yeah? Mm. And as you feel everything within you, then you know that there's only a certain amount of steps you can take toward the world of, of a white or a, or a black hat because they're providing the lessons um, for you to, to witness uh, what they're presenting in terms of the mistakes they make with your perception because you're, you're not altering your perception to, uh, to couple with either one of them. You're, you're watching from the, from the feelings you have inside of whether you can go forward. And when you don't go forward, you step back. And then you watch the mistakes that they make in terms of, in terms of how they've perceived you because they've got a motive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you, if you have an ulterior motive, you say, well, you go up to a, to a person and say, look, I've, I've got an ulterior motive. I need you to help me with this. And it's very, very honest. Mm-hmm. And, then you, and then you watch what somebody does with that and, they, and you know exactly what you're putting on the table. And what you're putting on your table is honestly really how you need to proceed because of your circumstances. And then you can, you, then you can observe from an honest perspective what other people will do with your intentions. And if your intentions aren't wholesome, it'll grow into an unwholesome circumstance. If your intentions are really wholesome in terms of in terms of who you really are it'll grow into into a flourish into something very very successful mm. but, it, but it's all determined by by how people want to drag the other individual or the individual who's put themselves forward and said look this is my ulterior motive um, and then you watch what uh, what is done with you with the truth of how you want to proceed and then you find yourself in, in the world of, of opposites mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Mm. And so in the dealing with, with the white hat and the black hat, and in well, many respects, you're not really dealing with them, you're just being... You're, you're just being in that emptiness and of service to them. But do you do you find that if in in practicing that and interacting with the black and white hat um, behaviors and biases, is that a position where you would give an opinion, or you, if they asked, or would you just stay quiet and let it play out? You you quite you stay quiet as long as it doesn't hurt you and and watch what plays out because then mm-hmm. then then the, the the cognitive dissidence in in terms of the observer will will show you what they do with how they perceive you because they can't really see you because how can they really perceive you if you're not there you're just watching the circumstance mm-hmm. now the, the I'm talking about an intuitive impact from 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 this perspective an intuitive mm-hmm. path is really looking for a true connection mm-hmm. now if a true connection can't be made. Because an intuitive empath is feeling inside of themselves the heart wants to make a true connection, wants to, wants to speak honestly and proceed upon what really needs to be done and not, not what is perceived that should be done. Mm-hmm. What needs to be done and what should be done are, are two totally different things. If we look at our world, we've done um, what should have been done in terms of all the mechanisms that, that we've got going, but it doesn't work. We're destroying our planet. What needs to be done has got to, you've got to make a decision, or oh, you can't really do this, and then you find all the rules, rules and regulations around you don't allow you to perceive in this, in this truthful manner. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so, so you're looking for an intuitive connection, an yeah. empathic intuitive connection. That's what everybody's after. Everyone's after for that real connection. Mm-hmm. And our, our heart bounces around our chest making that connection. And when that connection's made, then you've got to, then you've got to dissolve all the uh, social nuances which come from the person that, that, that sees that there's a heart connection and, and then adds in their, their social bias. Mm-hmm. And this then um, eliminates the, the first original feeling, which is, which is connected to something which is so subtle. Yeah? Mm-hmm. The self-reflection, who I am, what I've done, everything like this, then becomes of prominence and then the heart disappears. Mm-hmm. Because the prominence of who you are takes precedence over of who you, where you could be and who you could be in that circumstance. It's all about who you were and who you are. Yeah instead of about who you really could be. Mm. Very, very interesting. It really is. And at, at, when we open up to this uh, and, and start to, and this is what I've found uh, over the years, but even more so accelerated since reading your books, um, is that the more I become aware of it, the more it, it's, it feels, <laughs> it's very easy to want to be isolated and not want to engage because of the social agendas, because of the, you can, for me, I, I get words flash up with people and I can see things and, and and I often do stand still in that and don't give an opinion and, and, and practice the art of being unimportant and practice the art of being um, uh, non, uh, uh, neutral. But in that, I find myself wanting to be very isolated um, and not engaging as much, but then I get this other part of me that's well, no, Tennille, you're here to be of service to the world. You have to go get out there and do stuff, <laughs> you know. And and I love to do. I've always been a, a doer from a very young age. Um, you know, I started my first business at eight, so I was always creative in that respect. But I just um, find that yeah, it's it's a it's a dance. I think when you first step into all this, it's it's quite quite the dance to know how do I you know, effectively, um, and this is my next question, actually, I'll roll into this about moral imperatives. And in in your book, you've spoken about being, which I like, (laughs) being in the wrong place at the right time. 
and um, and see and, and I totally agree with this and see situations that we bring into our field um, as part of what I call boot camp for the soul and uh, and to me these experiences um, that challenge your moral imperative but where I'm getting to and it's and it ties into what I was saying before is that I feel like there's a fine line between um, exposure for growth and subconsciously falling into the agendas of social eddies and dramas and um, in times when I've felt the overwhelming need to withdraw or have no reaction where society normally expects one, um, sometimes the pressure can start to infiltrate doubt into my mind. Um, so how do you deal with circumstances, for example, if people don't want to let go of you when you withdraw? <laughs> they okay. hook in. And is there a compassionate way to do this without feeding the social agendas or compromising our own moral imperatives? Okay. The one thing that you said which, which really stood out is that unconsciously, mm-hmm. You unconsciously get caught into the social program. There's nothing really unconscious. You make agreement, agreements. Everything you do is an agreement that you that you walk into. Even if you walk into a circumstance and you make you make the the absolute um, decision uh, to be of service to your circumstance, you're still making in a you're making a very very subtle agreement, or you make an agreement to go into the into the circumstance of uh, the the moral imperative in terms of. In terms of the social eddy, or you have a moral imperative in terms of being of service. So you you can be in all your circumstances, yet disappear and act within those circumstances without being seen. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and this way, you're still living a very reclusive life, but nobody can really see who you are because they don't recognise your actions. They only recognise the the words and the reflections of what they understand in terms of um, how deep they don't see you. They may see you on the surface of the water, yet you may be 10 feet deep as far as they're concerned, but they don't see you 10 feet deep. And then you're wondering why they can't see that you're 10 feet deep. Mm-hmm. And the only, the only reason they can't see you're 10 feet deep is because you're not, you're not uh, uh, absolutely uh, there in the, in the social milieu. You're there to, to act with, uh, with integrity or with a, with a feeling that doesn't compromise your heart. You've got, you've, got two, you've got two ways you can do this. You need enormous amounts of pers- personal power. To, to speak exactly what your heart is uh, revealing to you. Mm-hmm. And then you, you've got to follow through. If you, if you reveal what's in your heart, then you don't go into the social eddy, but the social eddy will challenge your perspective. Mm. Now, isn't that our life path to actually <laughs> to, to do that? But you've got, to, you've got to follow through because whatever you say can be interpreted by somebody else and be perceived as your mistake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you, then you, if you realize that that uh, that that uh, the individuals can't understand where you're coming from in terms of the depth of your understanding, then you watch the mistakes they're making and you act as if you don't see anything. So then it becomes a, a very very big education uh, because if you did have the courage to say something and then you realize that nothing should have been said, then the next alternative you're in the you're in the wrong place at the wrong time to be in the right place at the wrong time is to withdraw at that particular very, very subtle point and then to watch what somebody does with the, with the, uh, the dissidents in terms of their, uh, their, their inability to recognize uh, your approach because it's unrecognizable, because it's not socially bound. Mm. Yeah? So you watch a mistake and, that's, and you, you, you're kind and generous to that person as they make the mistakes because you know they can't see you and you know that when you, when you do really explain something to them uh, to, so that your heart uh, feels the need to say something, then when you realize that they can't understand it, then you have to withdraw. Mm-hmm. But you can still be reclusive yet be absolutely available. And this is the discipline not to, to know when to talk and when not to talk and know when to act mm-hmm. and 
to to have enough power to put your put your actions into words. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I've been uh, practicing that for for a few years, where I um, quite some time where I would a lot of people say, "Well, you're very quiet," but then when I run a workshop, uh, you can't shut me up. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking, talking, and and imparting and sharing and and taking people on wherever the the journey um, that they need, that they're you know going on, and and it's often a bit of a surprise for people in that that. Um, and it's a bit confusing for me because I, I, I'm very much in the reclusive, but then I feel pushed that I've got to go out and do what I've got to do, or whatever you know, whatever it calls for me to do that day. Um, but yeah, I do find that it's you know in situations where I do really know it's time to withdraw because it's it's starting to impact my moral imperative. Um, you know, I've I've yeah, practicing that. My my one thing that I've had to try and work out is how it's doing doing that in a way where I'm not I'm still compassionate I'm still kind but sometimes there comes a point where you've just got to go complete block <laughs> with certain certain circumstances because they're just not they're, they're not giving giving up they keep you know hooking, hooking into you yeah but when you when you look at this really 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 strongly you can say okay what you what you're explaining is is basically when you're in a workshop people laugh to hear what you say because everything you say has got to coming it's coming from your intuitive sense instead in terms of being recalibrated by the group uh so that you can actually speak on behalf of them for them mm -hmm. so this is why you can't stop speaking but when you're with somebody that uh, that's recalibrating you and you find that you can't speak to them because the recalibration then stops your voice from occurring so you don't you know you can't talk because you can't complete exactly what needs to be said because you're in the wrong place mm -hmm. but you're in the right place to learn <laughs> Yeah, wrong place at the right time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, and it's a, it's um, it's all about recalibration because everything that uh, that is done to us uh, recalibrates us. So we we take responsibility for the recalibration. We we recognize the feeling, and as we recognize the feeling, uh, then we we start to grow into intuitive empaths. Mm -hmm. So when you when you withdraw to your home and you don't want anything to do with anybody, you're 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 replenishing because the world is not uh, nurturing enough for you to go out fully yet. And this is what's happening to, to many, many intuitive empaths at the moment. They can only withstand a certain amount of contact mm -hmm. and then they withdraw. And it's not because you don't, uh, because, uh, you don't have the ability or there's something wrong with you. There's something very right with you. Mm. Because yeah. withdrawal, withdrawal is a very, very important thing. And when you're being recalibrated, recalibrated in a circumstance where you'd really, you really don't belong there, but you have to be there, the recalibration is the discipline of seeing what's what the storm which is raising inside of your chest and then to, to very, very gently um, contact your, your inner beingness in terms of your resources to watch that and be of service to that and use a calm voice but use the storm to talk with, but nobody knows, you, knows that you're using the storm to talk with. Mm-hmm. They know that you that you haven't been affected, but you've been affected tremendously. So you're you're observing the 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 circumstance and not interfering with the circumstance as much as if you were in the circumstance that had your storm, and then you were really interfering with the circumstance because the storm doesn't belong to your to your inter internal silence or your your empathic ability to actually know you shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. So you have to be there with the, with as much kindness as possible and. Uh, and and allow your yourself to bleed into that circumstance mm, mm. in a way, in a way which is which is uh, only appropriate to a, to a certain degree because you can't fully be there. Yeah. And in your workshop uh, circumstances, when you're meant to be there, and, 
and uh, you don't bleed at all. You just you like a rushing river. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Mm. <laughs> um, and in that as well, when you when you spoke about um, uh, becoming empty, and there was a section in your book about becoming empty, and <laughs> I kind of got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know, when we reach a space of emptiness, how would we ever know that we're actually empty? Because my understanding is that if we arrive there, we we actually don't know that we're empty because if we had the awareness of emptiness, would it mean that we're no longer empty because we have that awareness? <laughs> okay, now let's 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 now look at a, an intuitive um, individual. Now, an intuitive imp- individual, when they become empty, the all they've kicked out is the social milieu. They've kicked out everything that's been trained of them. Mm-hmm. Now, the way you can find out whether you're empty is to is to see that you're preempting the the needs and wants of other people because they've entered inside of you. Emptiness. Um, in, firm, in terms of intuitive impasse uh, or, or, or someone who sees, they, they automatically invite the environment that's outside of them to come inside so they can watch it because you've got enough, enough room to be observing uh, the environment and uh, becoming, uh, having a, a stewardship mm-hmm. towards your environment. That's, that's our evolutionary process of where we're meant, meant to go next. We're, we're always uh, caring for our environment. So when you become empty, your mind stops. You begin to you begin to look inside and 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 looking outside um, only a little. Mm, the two percent, so the two percent, yeah. and the ninety eight percent isn't that's yeah, what you talk yeah. about in your book. I've, I've been yeah. practicing that. It's amazing how quickly how how much attention we do put in on or I personally not we but for me, I in practicing that, I I started to realize wow I really do put a lot of my attention in the outside world and I even though I am quite internal and I reflect a lot internally I still in in going well hang on you know 98% 2% <laughs> it's yeah, it, it's you, not yeah it's interesting if you say if you say you 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 give a cursory glance to the world around you this is the most honorable thing that you can do because a cursory glance is all that's necessary because we're very familiar with our environment. Mm-hmm. If we give 98% of, of our eyes to internally watching while we're, while we're communicating to someone, that person enters us because uh, the, the perception of outside gets pulled inside by, by that perception. If we don't listen to our own internal dialogue, if the internal dialogue's not there, our ears are totally open to listen to what the person's saying. Mm-hmm. So this, this becomes an intuitive sense of watching the, uh, the micro gestures made within words, the micro gestures made within the, the human form, which, which indicate where the person is. So you, you've got a, a river of information moving inside your, your heart center, and when it spins, it gives you the capacity to speak what you're experiencing, because it's all about feeling, not about thought. So. So then you you become you be, you realize your emptiness is is fully arrived when you don't think. Your mm-hmm. emptiness is fully arrived upon when you can speak about what you feel. Um, and the the best way to come to terms with is it me or is it them? There's a very very strange anomaly which which happens to 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 the human race right now. A lot of people are getting this because this is our next evolutionary step is to become intuitively empathic. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you recognize that? Well, somebody has a thought and a feeling. And all of a sudden, you realize that they're having that thought and they're feeling because you're so attuned. And then they'll, they'll, if they're honest, they'll say, how did you know that? And you'll say, I didn't know that. I just spoke it. I was listening to what I was saying. But you actually knew it because you said it. And the, 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 the previous step before that, you speak it. You don't know, you're, you don't know that you, you're speaking what they're feeling, but they realize it. And the step before that is they're not going to tell you because that's not your right to know what they're, know, know what they're thinking or feeling. You understand? Mm-hmm. Step back. 
backwards. If we take a step uh, a step forward from the from the first experience, the, the the person you're listening to doesn't want to admit you know exactly what's going on inside of them because mm-hmm. they have a belief system that that that's not real, and then then the the, the intuitive empath doesn't even know they're repeating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, Feeling. And then you go to the next level. The person is honest enough to say, "Wow, you're repeating what I'm, what I'm, what I'm feeling. You're talking about what I was thinking about yesterday. Uh, how do you do that?" And uh, the empath, if they're really honest, they'll say, "I don't know what I'm, what I'm, why I'm feeling what I'm feeling, but I'm listening to what I'm saying, and I know it's your truth mm. because I'm not in there as a reflection. Mm. So I have no past. I have no history." Your past and your history are, is, is of importance to me, more importance than, than mine. And that's the next evolutionary step. Yeah. Because, yeah. because how, are we going to, how are we going to really communicate with beings that may be beyond our planetary system? Uh, how are we going to communicate if we don't use words? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where we're going. We have to learn to communicate without words. Yeah. And, to know, and to know that those words can be spoken. Mm-hmm. Because language, but language languages messes up a little bit. Yeah, We're getting a little bit confused because of the, the cognitive bias that we've got in terms of the understanding and taking ownership of that understanding. But if we let go of uh, the ownership of our understanding in terms of the semantics that we're being that, that we're involved in, if we sink into our hearts, we let our hearts uh, speak on our behalf, and then you don't have thought forms. You have you have vibratory feelings, which are frequencies. So you you allow your heart to to feel what can't can't be touched, to see what can't be viewed, but to 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 make an utterance about what couldn't be heard. It's all frequency, and the utterance of what couldn't be heard happens uh, by virtue of the ears listening to what you're saying, and you're more you're just as surprised at what you say in comparison to what the other person uh, is realizing in terms of their surprise of of not being able to re- to remember what you've said because it's a different frequency. Mm. Because the heart, the heart uh, gives the, the delivery of words, and then the person hears what you say, they get a total shock, and then you say, what did I say? And they said, I can't repeat it. I don't even remember from one second to other, because the, the, the vibratory signature is different to a thought form being transferred dogmatically uh, through the mind and, and scripting it and putting it out the mouth because it's been practiced. Yes. Yeah. And you, you, you can't practice um, being or saying something that is meant to be said on, the, on another person's behalf, and they're your words. So that means the ears are absolutely listening to what you're saying and listening to what the other person's saying as well. So you don't get in your own way by having an internal dialogue. So if we're talking now, and, and when you're really listening, I'm not thinking, and neither are you, you're listening. Mm. So, so it's not, not that I'm the dominant party here, it's just that there's, there's, there's something very, very special occurring when, when all the cognitive bias in terms of the reasonable premise that surrounds I understand in comparison to, whoa, I really understand. <laughs> mm. Yeah, a cellular level understanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it's it, it is interesting. I've found that through the years, I've I've had uh, people that would turn up and speak something to me, and I know that it's coming through from a different. It's a, it's almost like it's a message coming through through them to me. Um, something that I needed to hear, but couldn't, and perhaps needed to come through. Uh, in in that language, you know, to come through in the in the spoken language to me because I wasn't hearing it, um, and that that happens um, quite a bit to me. Not as much these days, but did uh, did in the past. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's the shadow of a doubt which which causes us to do to to not believe uh, the position that we're meant to progress into, and this is like a cognitive bias as well. Mm. Is that everything everything that uh, that that happens in front of us is meant to happen? We can't avoid what's happening in front of us because it's it's right there, and uh, it's it's just a matter of uh, of how you attach yourself to that because you no, no matter. Uh, what anybody says, everybody uh, has an attachment to a certain degree because um, mm. we're intuitive beings that feel. And we have, we have to be attached uh, to, to something because that attachment then leads us to something more subtle that we can't attach to. Mm. And we've got to go, we, 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 we bring down those attachments very, very gently, very, very gently until all of a sudden we discover that the, there's a cognitive distance where, where, the, where there's a thing that you, you realize but you don't know how you realized it. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, yeah? Yeah. I just had that conversation in my head yesterday. I'm like, how did I know that? I knew that that was that, but I, didn't, I don't know how I knew it, but I just knew it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is, this is a, uh, the world itself giving you... Like, when you look at the, a lot of shamanistic work, they say, well, this is an omen. But you've got to really look at what, what is an omen. An omen doesn't come about because you see a crow. An omen doesn't come about because, because you're, you're looking for the, the, the shamanistic view in terms of the reflection of what you think should happen in terms of uh, uh, recognizing a circumstance, which is just a cognitive bias, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing that comes through the world that, that that slips in between all the the known reality is so subtle that uh, that it whispers so quietly that you can't hear it, mm. and it's and it's so unbelievably subtle that you can't see it, mm-hmm. and you can't touch it because it's not there to be there to be uh, verified in terms of it being uh, solidly available. So what can we work with if there's nothing to work with? Yeah. Yeah, and as soon as you realize there's nothing to work with and you're nobody, and as soon as you become nobody, then you discover that there's something of value to be recognized, but that something of value to be, is to be recognized only because you've taken yourself out of the equation completely. And nobody becomes somebody in terms of something making itself available, but the person knows that they can never take the leap to being somebody in terms of recognizing what they need to communicate. Mm. So you always got to be in the lowest common denominator in you you can't be this or that you have to be nothing to be something mm-hmm. and, and really when you look at it from a physics perspective what's at the what's at the basis of a chair there's a vibration which holds it together and that vibration is understood just to be a frequency that doesn't have any any uh, time space continuum to lock onto in terms of you seeing how the, how is this really happening yeah and then you could say well how does that how does that chair really exist Everybody can see that chair, and it's solid. I fall over it; I'll hurt myself. And but but underneath that chair is it's held up by a, by a by a zero factor, by a, by an emptiness which is uh, very very difficult to comprehend. And then you've got to go beyond that vibration of emptiness to discover what's what's actually behind that. Hmm. Yeah. It's, so uh, it's you, almost like getting out getting out of our own way is is yeah. uh, is, is an imperative part of <laughs> of yeah. our journey, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So the, the the paradox is is to understand that there's there's something to be understood, but nothing to be to be uh, journeyed towards because we've already arrived. That's it. Yeah. And if if you realise that you've already arrived, you've got to you you have to really wait for your circumstances to come upon you and to deliver to deliver you to a sense of of feeling which which is uh, comparative to a rapture. Mm. And the rapture is a feeling of joy, a feeling of happiness, and and so much energy energy that. Um, 
that you joyously affect and recalibrate your circumstances within that joy. Mm. Mm. And know in the same breath that you can't possess that feeling because eventually that's going to be uh, recalibrated into a feeling that you need to observe because, because no, no state can, can ever be uh, continuously the same. Mm. There's always uh, self-similarity in terms of every environment you go into. You have to recognize everywhere that you are. Mm, it's always different. It's always different, yeah. Mm. Mm. So let's talk about energetic sovereignty. <laughs> I kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> this is another, on another topic. <laughs> um, in ancient traditions or myths, um, we're told that dreaming is the window to our inner world. And many, many of us almost feel a sense of reward or excitement around what depth we see in the dreaming state, almost as if it's you know, some kind of gift of sight <laughs> into the other realms. Um, and then there's the philosophy uh, query of are we in fact dreaming in the awake state or awake in the dreaming state? And for me, dreams, re for me personally, dreams really aren't, my dreams really aren't dreams. I feel like they're really clear, concise messages for me where I'm on my path and my journey. And I often wake up with a, a voice in my head telling me and reiterating that that's what, that, that that was this and this was that. And you share, but you share in your book about taking back energetic sovereignty in dreaming and the waking world and refer to the first attention and second attention and how taking responsibility for our lives and living with integrity is what builds our personal power to work in the other realms. Could you briefly exp explain the, uh, the second state or dream state and why this is just another compartmentalised um, component of our own reality that we create, keeping us in a perception that's sort of almost limiting our potential and personal power? And then how can we begin to break through this and connect with the truth within these states? Okay. Now, if you, if you assign yourself to be of service, now that means that I would assign, assign my eyes to only see what's available in terms of the world that I'm living in while I'm awake because there's nothing there. Yet there's something to be viewed. Mm -hmm. So I, I assign my eyes to the, to the reality that's right in front of me uh, to give myself 100% sovereign responsibility of being here, to assign my ears to the, to the same responsibility, to only to listen to what becomes available and to be 100% to be in this world alone because this is the most important world we're in. Mm -hmm. Because no matter, no matter what we dream, we still have to deal with the world in front of us. So if I give my heart uh, an assignment, the assignment is to, is to speak the reflection of the world around me. Yet, in my next book, I talk about uh, the, the vision of, of seeing God and to actually see my father on, on the you know, three months after he died. Now, when, when, when you look at this, you say, well, Luhan, you, you're contradicting yourself. No, I'm not wanting to be anywhere other than where I really am. And I don't want to be somewhere else uh, within a dreamscape, which has got nothing to do with the reality that, I've, that I'm really struggling through because this this reality that we're in is really where the struggle is there, there can be no real illusions there there can be no there can maybe you could dream something but you can't apply it to life mm -hmm. now uh because i had a vision uh, of god and a vision of my father um, i talk about this very very strongly in my next next book who am i and uh this this vision led me to understand this world with so much more depth and as you read, read the, the next book, you'll see it's not like the one before, the, nor the one before that, nor the one before that. So each, each um, dream vision gives a compartmentalized, um, a certain amount of information that I, don't, I didn't even want. Mm -hmm. I wasn't searching for it. So if I'm not searching for it, I don't have a cognitive bias. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. And if I find something, then if it gives me information, I have something to speak, and uh, and the and the book constructs itself. If I construct if I construct the book, then I am I constructing the book out of a bias, or is the book constructing itself because of the insight that occurred? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you when you look at uh, the, the cognitive distance in terms of understanding, is you, you're you're still going to be struggling, or people are going to be struggling with what I'm just saying, because because meeting God uh, is a very very interesting thing. And I'll go into that with the book. I don't quite believe what I what I experienced because I wasn't fully in in the total cognitive dissidence of being uh, in a in a place where I can be regulated. Mm -hmm. So so when I when I saw that experience and I saw what happened with my father, uh, then I, I fell back into the reality. And as I saw the illusion coming upon me, I'm realizing there's something something in the white light which wasn't quite right. Mm -hmm. And I won't exp I won't explain this, mm -hmm. but. You'll actually be able to see it in the book now. So, so the experience, I wasn't searching for that experience. I wasn't uh, congratulating myself for, for having anything that was coming. I just had the real, realization and the words that came out of me uh, were a total surprise to me. And the mm -hmm. book is an absolute total surprise. So it's constructed itself the same way everything else has constructed itself in my life. But uh, if I go looking and assign my eyes to look for something, mm -hmm. you realize that there's a cognitive bias in terms of the construction of looking for something. If you allow the, your words to, to construct their, their, own, their own structure as you're listening to them, you're, not, you're outside of a cognitive bias because you're listening to those particular uh, instruction because I, because I um, um, uh, dictate my books to, to my friend over the internet. Mm. I, I don't write them. Yeah, so they're, they're dictated. So I'm listening to what I'm saying and I'm seeing the book being constructed because I have no idea what I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. It's only the next moment, next, next moment which inspires uh, the next realization. And the realization has got nothing to do with the, the, the construction of an idea, but the, but the, um, the portrayal of, of uh, portrayal of an experience which came upon one single moment just for a, for a glimpse. And this glimpse, has, this glimpse has become 150 pages of a book. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and uh, uh, so so I would say that um, people choose what they what they need to choose. There's there's no reason to tell them not to choose what they want. But but if you look at my first book, you'll say, well, uh, you chose to write about this, and I didn't choose that to happen to me. That happened to me. Mm. Yeah. So there was no choice from from my perspective. You could say that uh, that I was kidnapped, mm -hmm. and went into that reality without, uh, without agreeing to it at all. So, so I, I wasn't looking for anything. It all found me. Now, then someone will say, well, my realities are finding me. Well, depending on your cognitive bias, what you do with what finds you defines who you are. So you've got to watch what you're doing um, in terms of building uh, an identity instead of, uh, instead of um, relaying uh, the experience of, of an insight which you have no, no idea how it's going to appear within the within the, the words constructing themselves from your book of life mm. the feeling the feelings of your heart now I have no idea what I'm going to say when you ask me the question mm. I, have, I have no constructed idea I'm following my feelings right now as I, as I talk to you so so there's there's no cognitive bias in terms of me trying to understand what I'm saying I'm only just talking the feeling that arrived upon me as you asked the question mm. So if I would tell people don't do that, or if I would tell people to do that, 
I can only say what, what's happened to me. The, the experience is an insight, and that insight has enormous volumes of information, if the, even if that insight was for a split second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that split second has so much power to, to, to deconstruct my world and reconstruct my world in a way which recreates me. I don't recreate myself. Yeah. Yeah? Mm. Isn't this interesting? Because oh, I, yes. <laughs> have, I have absolute um, um, determination to speak the, the heartfelt feelings that I've got, yet my, I'm not getting in the way of my feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But everybody does the best that they can. Mm. Yeah? Yeah, they so, do. Yeah. 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 And, and this, this is the only way for me to, 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 to explain um, what, what really occurs in terms of my life. Mm. And there's no there's no real real ground for me to even stand on in terms of to explain how that's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if I give a, a really concrete reason of how that's happening, uh, then then maybe I've developed a cognitive bias to put me into a category. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one of one of my students says, "What's what's shamanism? How is this? This is a bit confusing." And I said, "All you've got to do is understand shamanism in terms of the altering of perception." Mm-hmm. Any, any cognitive dissidence in terms of subtext is, is actually truly a subtext. And a subtext always feeds into the desire and the, and the motivations of a person. But the motivations of understanding the altering of perception has nothing to do with the person altering it for their, for their bias. Their bias is deconstructed by the, by the purpose of eternity in its omnipresence, pressing upon the limitations of that particular individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it sounds like, you know, from this this journey of the last book, has been pretty profound for you. Well, life is profound. Just being with you, you is profound. Mm. You know, it's uh, to to put the put to put the uh, the limitations uh, any limitations anywhere is is virtue. This is a book of life, mm-hmm. in terms of what's what's going in between us. Mm. Now, even even we could say, well, this, this is a construct, constructed meeting, and uh, maybe years ago I would have had very, very big difficulty being in a situation like this because I wanted my heart to flow. Mm-hmm. But, but fortunately, uh, the situation between us is that is you've given me enough room for me to flow, and you've got enough room to flow because I don't want to interfere with you either. Mm-hmm. So, so this, this becomes the mystery of mysteries <laughs> because, because there, there have been answers given to, to inquiries, yet the, but when you look at the answer, there's nothing really to be obtained. Mm. Yet the information is, is absolutely uh, specific in terms of how to proceed. Mm-hmm. But, but how do we proceed with not knowing how to proceed? Yeah. It all comes down to, to revealing the feelings that you've got and allow those, allow those feelings to truly give themselves words and you, be, you become the conduit of those words, so you're of service to that feeling. Mm-hmm. So who am I? And who are you when you say, well, if I'm being of service to the feeling? Now, I'll, I'll jump totally out of this into another subject. What happened to Gandhi when he got shot? He was assassinated. The first thing he did was turn around and forgive and bless the man who killed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he holds no bias. He forgave immediately. Mm-hmm. Because any holding onto onto anything which constructs uh, the, his reality um, will determine who he is. 
So he didn't want to be determined as anything other than somebody who could be of service to someone who took his life away. Mm-hmm. What a what a most magnificent last act. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, so, it's amazing. It's, um, yeah. So when I, you look at Sorry. <laughs> no, no, go ahead when you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at this, he's absolutely being of service and a, and a river of information in terms of he, he lived his last, last moment the same way he lived his life. Mm-hmm. And his last, last moment is, is a testament to being, being of service. Mm. It's the ultimate being the change, isn't it? Yeah. That you wish to see. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that's just it, I think, when we start to step into the into that phase of ask, asking the question well, without fear, without blame, without judgment, well, then who am I? And it almost arrives back at what we were talking about before is, well, nobody. If I have none of that, then, I've, then I'm nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But the magnificence about being nobody gives you the, the, the absolute um, impetus mm-hmm. to, be, to be something that you can arrive upon at the next moment, it, it disappears. Mm. I think it, it, I heard an interesting saying. That may may be parallel to that, but I'm not sure. But if it, it was it was something along the lines of, um, if we are if if we arrive at a place of being undefined, um, we can create anything we want because nothing defines us. Or or everything can be created and we can represent it. Mm. Because then, then we're still nothing because we're representing something that we have no idea how it arrived upon us. Mm. So we, we deconstruct that a little bit more in, in terms of um, we, we, don't, we don't know really who we are. Mm. And the cognitive dissonance is to say if we can be nothing, we can create something because we're somebody because of that nothing, but we're still going to be nothing while we're constructing that something by being, <laughs> by being, by being of service to it. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and all all the while keeping it out of our head and, and keeping out of our own way. <laughs> yeah, or keeping out of everybody else's way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As you do it, yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Luhan, for I, I I feel like I could keep going. Um, for ages with you but i'm conscious of time as well of the the, yeah. the time in this realm <laughs> yeah. um so yeah i'm really grateful for yeah the time that you've you've given and um and <laughs> just being yeah to be able to be on this experience and this journey with you has just uh, been an absolute honor so i'm really really truly yeah. grateful and I'm, I'm sure that the people that are called to listen to it will uh, will certainly resonate with what you're saying and um, yeah. um i think that's all for the greater purpose so. You, you should give it, you should give our love to the person in the background cleaning. I know that's <laughs> that's why that's why I'm wrapping up. <laughs> it's uh, it's my partner's mum. She's uh, she's yeah. making her her food in the yeah. background, so <laughs> I don't have the heart to sort of say shh 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 because uh, she can't really hear me right now. <laughs> yeah, this this is a perfect this is the perfect perfect position to be in, in of service because maybe the listeners will say what the hell's going on in the background there <laughs> and. And we be of, be of absolutely service, and then and then realize that it's time for us to move on. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. that's pretty much where, where I'm at with it. I'm realizing, okay, <laughs> it's time. <laughs> okay, uh, I really oh. enjoyed talking to you. I've really yeah. enjoyed. You're such a beautiful person, really. Oh, thank you, Lohan. As are you. Yeah. It's been a, a real honor and pleasure. It's just, um, yeah, and just joy, absolute joy. Yeah. So thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, it's it's my pleasure too. Bye, lovely. See you later.